This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read to help you sleep. For anyone who's listened to Sleepy before, welcome back. And to anyone new, welcome. The show's been continuing to grow, and we're being listened to all over the world. It's really, really incredible. So if the show works for you and you want to help us find other sleepy people, just go to iTunes really quick and give a rating and also leave a book that you would like to hear on Sleepy in one of the reviews. This only takes a second and it really helps the show get found. Thank you. Also, because I am hoping that you'll be asleep by the end of this, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski. It's made on this really crazy little steel ukulele thing that he made. This summer was a long time coming. The winter was just brutal if you were in the Northeast or Midwest and it just kept going. And now it's that kind of muggy and hot that brings me back to my childhood growing up in Vermont. I had one of those very stereotypical rural upbringings. Fishing and swimming and biking, catching frogs, getting in trouble. I actually miss it a lot. So tonight, 
I'm going to read something that always brings me back to that place. It's The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. When I was a kid, I played Tom Sawyer in a musical. I remember singing a song about shoes being the worst. Still true. Some other parts of the book did not age as well as this notion, and for some of you, that is plenty enough reason to skip this one and go to one of our other episodes. So, lay your head down, settle in, fix your pillow just how you like it, and slowly melt into your bed. Close your eyes, and let me read to you. Tom, no answer. Tom, no answer. What's wrong with that boy, I wonder? You, Tom, no answer. The old lady pulled her spectacles down and looked over them about the room. Then she put them up and looked out under them. She seldom or never looked through them for so small a thing as a boy. They were a state pair, the pride of her heart, and were built for style, not service. She could have seen through a pair of stove lids just as well. She looked perplexed for a moment and then said, not fiercely, but still loud enough for the furniture to hear, well, I lay if I get hold of you all. She did not finish, for by this time she was bending down and punching under the bed with a broom, and so she needed breath to punctuate the punches with. She resurrected nothing but the cat. I never did see the beat of that boy. She went to the open door and stood in it and looked out among the patio and looked out among the tomato vines and jimson weeds that constituated the garden. No Tom. So she lifted up her voice at an angle calculated for distance and shouted, You, Tom. There was a slight noise behind her and she turned just in time to seize a small boy by the slack of his roundabout and arrest his flight. There. I might have thought of that closet. What you been doing in there? Nothing. Look at your hands. And look at your mouth. What is that truck? I don't know, aunt. Well, I know. It's jam. That's what it is. Forty times I've said, if you didn't let that jam alone, I'd skin you. Hand me that switch. The switch hovered in the air. The peril was desperate. My, look behind you, aunt. The old lady whirled around and snatched her skirts out of danger. The lad fled on the instant, scrambled up the high board fence, and disappeared over it. His Aunt Polly stood surprised a moment, and then she broke into a gentle laugh. Hang the boy. Can't I never learn anything? Ain't he played me tricks enough like that for me to be looking out for him by this time? but old fools is the biggest fools there is. Can't learn an old dog new tricks, as the saying is. But my goodness, he never plays them alike. Two days. And how is a body to know what's coming? He appears to know just how long he can torment me before I get my dander up. And he knows if he can make out to put me off for a minute or make me laugh, it's all down again, and I can't hit him with a lick. I ain't doing my duty by that boy. And that's the Lord's truth, goodness knows. Spare the rod and spoil the child. 
as the good book says. I'm a laying up sin and suffering for us both. I know. He's full of the old scratch. But laws of me, he's my own dead sister's boy. Poor thing. And I ain't got the heart to lash him somehow. Every time I let him off, my conscience does hurt me so. And every time I hit him, my old heart most breaks. Well, oh well. Man that is born of woman is of few days in full trouble. As the scripture says, and I'd reckon it's so. He'll play hooky this evening, and I'll just be obliged to make him work tomorrow to punish him. It's mighty hard to make him work Saturdays when all those boys is having holiday. But he hates work more than he hates anything else, and I've got to do some of my duty by him, or I'll be the ruination of this child. Tom did play hooky, and he had a very good time. He got back home barely in season to help Jim, the small black boy, saw next day's wood and split the kindlings before supper. At least he was there in time to tell his adventures to Jim while Jim did three-fourths of the work. Tom's younger brother, or rather half-brother, Sid, was already through his part of the work, picking up chips, for he was a quiet boy and had no adventurous, troublesome ways. While Tom was eating his supper and stealing sugar as opportunity offered, Aunt Polly asked him questions that were full of guile and very deep, for she wanted to trap him into damaging revealments. Like many other simple-hearted souls, it was her pet vanity to believe she was endowed with a talent for dark and mysterious diplomacy, and she loved to contemplate her most transparent devices as marvels of low cunning. Said she, Tom... It was middling warm in school, weren't it? Yes, am Powerful warm, weren't it? Yes, am Didn't you want to go swimming, Tom? A bit of a scare shot through Tom, a touch of uncomfortable suspicion. He searched Aunt Polly's face, but it told him nothing. So he said, No, well, not very much. The old lady reached out her hand and felt Tom's shirt and said, but you ain't too warm now, though. And it flattered her to reflect that she had discovered that the shirt was dry without anybody knowing that that was what she had in her mind. But in spite of her, Tom knew where the wind lay now, so he forestalled what might be the next move. Some of us pumped on our heads. Mine's damp yet, you see. Aunt Polly was vexed to think she had overlooked the bit of circumstantial evidence and missed the trick. Then she had a new inspiration. Tom, you didn't have to undo your shirt collar where I sewed it to pump on your head, did you? Unbutton your jacket. The trouble vanished out of Tom's face. He opened his jacket. His shirt collar was securely sewed. Brother, well go along with you. I had made sure you played hooky and been swimming. But I forgive you, Tom. I reckon you're a kind of singed cat as the saying is, better than you look, this time. She was half sorry her sagacity had miscarried, and half glad that Tom had stumbled into obedient conduct for once. But Sidney said, Well now, if I didn't think you sewed this collar with white thread, but it's black. Why, I did sew it with white. Tom. But Tom did not wait for the rest. As he went out the door, he said, Sidney, I'll lick you for that. In a safe place, 
Tom examined two large needles where they thrust into the lapels of his jacket and had thread bound about them. One needle carried white thread and the other black. He said, She'd never have noticed if it hadn't been for Sid. Confound it. Sometimes she sews it with white. Sometimes she sews it with black. I wish to Jiminy she'd stick to one or the other. I can't keep the run of them. But I bet you I'll lamb Sid for that. I'll learn him. He was not the model boy of the village. He knew the model boy very well, though, and loathed him. Within two minutes, or even less, he had forgotten all his troubles. Not because his troubles were one whit less heavy and bitter to him than a man's are to a man, but because a new and powerful interest bore them down and drove them out of his mind for the time. Just as men's misfortunes are forgotten in the excitement of new enterprises, this new interest was a valued novelty in whistling, which he had just acquired from a black man, and he was suffering to practice it undisturbed. It consisted in a peculiar bird-like turn, a sort of liquid warble produced by touching the tongue to the roof of the mouth at short intervals in the midst of the music. The reader probably remembers how to do it if he has ever been a boy. Diligence and attention soon gave him the knack of it, and he strode down the street with his mouth full of harmony and his soul full of gratitude. He felt much as an astronomer feels who has discovered a new planet, no doubt, as far as strong, deep, unalloyed pleasure is concerned, the advantage was with the boy, not the astronomer. The summer evenings were long. It was not dark yet. Presently Tom checked his whistle. A stranger was before him, a boy a shade darker than himself. A newcomer of any age or either sex was an impressive curiosity in the poor little shabby village of St. Petersburg. This boy was well-dressed, too, well-dressed on a weekday. This was simply astounding. His cap was a dainty thing. His clothes-buttoned blue cloth roundabout was new and natty, and so were his pantaloons. He had shoes on, and it was only Friday. He even wore a necktie, a bright bit of ribbon. He had a citified air about him that ate into Tom's vitals. The more Tom stared at the splendid marvel, the higher he turned up his nose at his finery, and shabbier and shabbier his own outfit seemed to him to grow. Neither boy spoke. If one moved, the other moved, but only sideways, in a circle. They kept face to face and eye to eye all the time. Finally, Tom said, I can lick you. I'd like to see you try it. Well, I can do it. No, you can't either. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. You can't. Can. Can't. An uncomfortable pause. Then Tom said, What's your name? Tisn't any of your business, maybe. Well, I'll all make it my business. Well, why don't you? If you say much, I will. Much, much, much. There now. Oh, you think you're mighty smart, don't you? I could lick you with one hand tied behind me if I wanted to. Why don't you do it? You say you can do it. Well, I will if you fool with me. Oh, yes. I've seen a whole family's in the same fix. Smarty, you think you're some 
now, don't you? Oh, what a hat. You can lump that hat if you don't like it. I dare you to knock it off. And anybody that'll take a dare will suck eggs. You're a liar. You're another. You're a fighting liar and doesn't take it up. I'll take a walk. So, if you give me much more of your sass, I'll take and bounce a rock off in your head. Oh, of course you will. Well, I will. Why don't you do it then? What do you keep saying you will for? Why don't you do it? It's because you're afraid. I ain't afraid. You are. I ain't. You are. Another pause and more eyeing and sidling around each other. Presently they were shoulder to shoulder. Tom said, Get away from here. Go away yourself. I won't. I won't either. So they stood, each with a foot placed at an angle as a brace, and both showing with might and mane and glowering at each other with hate. But neither could get an advantage. After struggling till both were hot and flushed, each relaxed his strain with a watchful caution. And Tom said, You're a coward and a pup. I'll tell my big brother on you, and he can thrash you with his little finger, and I'll make him do it too. What do I care for your big brother? I've got a brother that's bigger than he is. And what's more, he can throw him over that fence too. Both brothers were imaginary. That's a lie. Your saying so doesn't make it so. Tom drew a line in the dust with a big toe and said, I dare you to step over that and I'll lick you till you can't stand up. Anybody that'll take a dare will steal sheep. The new boy stepped over promptly and said, Now you said you'd do it. Now let's see you do it. Don't you crowd me now. You better look out. Well, you said you'd do it. Why don't you do it? By jingo, for two cents I will do it. The new boy took two broad coppers out of his pocket and held them out with derision. Tom struck them to the ground. In an instant, both boys were rolling and tumbling in the dirt, gripped together like cats, and for the space of a minute, they tugged and tore at each other's hair and clothes, punched and scratched each other's noses, and covered themselves with dust and glory. Presently, the confusion took form, and through the fog of battle, Tom appeared, seated astride the new boy, and pounding him with his fist. Holler enough, said he. The boy only struggled to free himself. He was crying, mainly from rage. Holler enough. And the pounding went on. At last the stranger let out a smothered, Nuff. And Tom let him up and said, Now that'll learn you. Better look out who you're fooling with next time. The new boy went off brushing the dust from his clothes, sobbing, snuffing, and occasionally looking back and shaking his head and threatening what he would do to Tom the next time he caught him out. To which Tom responded with jeers and started off in high feather, and as soon as his back was turned, the new boy snatched up a stone, threw it, and hit him between the shoulders, and then turned tail and ran like an antelope. Tom chased the traitor home, and thus found out where he lived. He then held a position at the gate for some time, daring the enemy to come outside but the enemy only made faces at him through the window and declined. 
At last the enemy's mother appeared and called Tom a bad, vicious, vulgar child and ordered him away. So he went away. But he said he loathed to lay for that boy. He got home pretty late that night. And when he climbed cautiously in at the window, he uncovered an ambuscade in the person of his aunt. And when she saw it, the state of his clothes were in her resolution to turn his Saturday holiday into captivity at hard labor became adamantine in its firmness. Strong temptations, strategic movements, the innocence beguiled. Saturday morning was come, and all the summer world was bright and fresh and brimming with life. There was a song in every heart, and if the heart was young, the music issued at the lips. There was a cheer in every face and a spring in every step. The locust trees were in bloom, and the fragrance of blossoms filled the air. Cardiff Hill, beyond the village and above it, was green with vegetation, and it lay just far enough away to seem a delectable land, dreamy, reposeful, and inviting. Tom appeared on the sidewalk with a bucket of whitewash and a long-handled brush. He surveyed the fence, and all gladness left him, and deep melancholy settled down upon his spirit. Thirty yards of board fence, nine feet high. Life to him seemed hollow, and existence but a burden. Sighing, he dipped his brush and passed it along the topmost plank. Repeated the operation. Did it again. Compared the insignificant whitewashed streak with the far-reaching continent of unwhitewashed fence, and sat down on a tree box discouraged. Jim came skipping up at the gate with a tin pail, and singing Buffalo Gals. Bringing water from the town pump had always been hateful work in Tom's eyes before, but now it did not strike him so. He remembered that there was company at the pump. White, mulatto, and black boys and girls were always there waiting their turns, resting, trading playthings, quarreling, fighting, skylarking. And he remembered that although the pump was only a 150 yards off, Jim never got back with a bucket of water under an hour, and even then somebody generally had to go after him. Tom said, Say, Jim, I'll fetch the water if you'll whitewash some. I'll fetch the water if you'll whitewash some. Jim shook his head and said, Can't, Mars Tom. Old missus, she stole me and I got to go and get this water and not stop fooling around with anybody. She said, she suspected Mars Tom's going to ask me to whitewash and go, and so she told me to long intend to my own business. She loads she'd tend to the whitewashing. Oh, never mind what she said, Jim. That's the way she always talks. Give me the bucket. I won't be gone only a minute. She won't ever know. Oh, I dasn't, Mars Tom. Old missus, she'd taken tar head off me. Indeed she would. She, she never licks anybody. Wax him over the head with her thimble. And who cares for that? I'd like to know. She talks awful. But talk don't hurt. Anyways, it don't if she don't cry. Jim, I'll give you a marvel. I'll give you White Alley. Jim began to waver. White Alley, Jim. It, it's a bully tall. My, that's a mighty gay marvel, I tell you. But Mars Tom, as powerful afraid, old missus. And besides, 
if you will, I'll show you my sore toe. Jim was only human. This attraction was too much for him. He put down his pail, took the white alley, and bent over the toe with absorbing interest while the bandage was being unwound. In another moment, he was flying down the street with his pail in a tingling rear. Tom was whitewashing with vigor, and Aunt Polly was retiring from this field with a slipper in her hand and triumph in her eye. But Tom's energy did not last. He began to think of the fun he had planned for this day, and his sorrows multiplied. Soon, the free boys would come tripping along on all sorts of delicious expeditions, and they would make a world of fun of him for having to work. The very thought of it burnt him like a fire. He got out his worldly wealth and examined it. Bits of toys, marbles, and trash. Enough to buy an exchange of work, maybe, but not half enough to buy so much as half an hour of pure freedom. So he returned to his straightened means to his pocket and gave up this idea of trying to buy the boys. At this dark and hopeless moment, an inspiration burst upon him. Nothing less than a great, magnificent inspiration. He took up his brush and went tranquilly to work. Ben Rogers hove in sight presently, the very boy of all boys, whose ridicule he had been dreading. Ben's gait was the hop and skip and jump proof enough that his heart was light and his anticipations high. He was eating an apple and giving a long melodious whoop at intervals, followed by a deep-toned ding-dong-dong, ding-ding-dong, for he was impersonating a steamboat. As he drew near, he slackened speed, took the middle of the street, leaned far over the starboard, and rounded to ponderously and with laborious pomp and circumstance he was personating the big Missouri and he considered himself to be drawing nine feet of water. He was boat and captain and engine bells combined. So he had to imagine himself standing on his own hurricane deck giving the orders and executing them. Stop her, sir. Ting-a-ling-ling. The headway ran almost out and he drew up slowly toward the sidewalk. Ship up to back. Ting-a-ling-ling. His arms straightened and stiffened down the sides. Set her back on the starboard. Ting-a-ling-ling. Chow. Chow. His right hand, meantime, describing stately circles, for it was representing a forty-foot wheel. Let her go back on the labboard. Ting-a-ling-ling-ling. Chow. Chow. The left hand began to describe circles. Stop the starboard, ting-a-ling-ling-ling. Stop the larboard. Come ahead on the starboard. Stop her. Let your outside turn over slow. Ting-a-ling-ling. Chow-chow. Get out in headline. Lively now. Come. Out with your spring line. What are you about there? Take a turn around that stump with a bite of it. Stand by that stage now. Let her go. Done with the engine, sir. Ting-a-ling-ling. Shh-ch-ch-ch-ch. Tom went on whitewashing. Paid no attention to the steamboat. Ben stared a moment and then said, Hi. You're a stump, ain't you? No answer. Tom surveyed his last touch with the eye of an artist. 
and he gave his brush another gentle sweep and surveyed the result as before. Ben ranged up alongside him. Tom's mouth watered for the apple, but he was stuck to his work. Ben said, Hello, old chap. You got work, hey? Tom wheeled suddenly and said, Why, it's you, Ben. I wasn't noticing. Say, I'm going to go swimming. I am. Don't you wish you could? But of course you'd rather work. Wouldn't you? Of course you would. Tom contemplated the boy a bit and said, What do you call work? Why, ain't that work? Tom resumed his whitewashing and answered carefully. And answered carelessly. Well, maybe it is. Maybe it ain't. All I know is it suits Tom Sawyer. Oh, come now. You don't mean to let on that you like it. The brush continued to move. Like it? Well, I don't see why I oughtn't to like it. Does a boy get a chance to whitewash a fence every day? That put the thing in a new light. Ben stopped nibbling his apple. Tom swept his brush daintily back and forth, stepped back to note the effect, added a touch here and there, criticized the effect again. Ben watching every move and getting more and more interested, more and more absorbed. Presently, he said, Say, Tom, let me whitewash a little. Tom considered, was about to consent, but he altered his mind. No, no, I reckon it would hardly do, Ben. You see, Aunt Polly's awful particular about this fence. Right here on this street, you know, but if it was the back fence... I wouldn't mind, and she wouldn't. Yeah, she's awful particular about this fence. It gotta be done very careful. I reckon there ain't one boy in a thousand, maybe two thousand, that can do it the way it's got to be done. No, if that's so. Oh, come now, just let me give a try. Only just a little. I'd let you, if you was me, Tom. Ben, I'd like to. Honest, Injun. But Aunt Polly, well... Jim wanted to do it, but she wouldn't let him. Sid wanted to do it, but she wouldn't let Sid. Now you don't see how I'm fixed. If you was to tackle this fence, and anything was to happen to it. Oh, shucks. I'll be just as careful. Now let me try. Say, I'll give you the core of my apple. Well, here. No, Ben, now don't. I'm afraid. I'll give you all of it. Tom gave up the brush with a reluctance in his face, but alacrity in his heart. And while the late steamer Big Missouri worked and sweated in the sun, the retired artist sat on the barrel in the shade close by, dangled his legs, munched his apple, and planned the slaughter of more innocence. There was no lack of material. Boys happened along every little while. They came to jeer, but remained to whitewash. By the time Ben was fagged out, Tom had traded the next chance to Billy Fisher for a kite in good repair, and when he played out, Johnny Miller brought in for a dead rat and a string to swing it with, and so on and so on, hour after hour. And when in the middle of the afternoon came, from being a poor poverty-stricken boy in the morning, Tom was literally rolling in wealth. He had besides the things before mentioned Twelve marbles, part of a Jew's heart, a piece of blue bottle glass to look through, a spool cannon, 
A key that wouldn't unlock anything. A fragment of chalk. A glass stopper of a decanter. A tin soldier. A couple of tadpoles. Six firecrackers. A kitten with only one eye. A brass doorknob. A dog collar, but no dog. The handle of a knife. Four pieces of an orange peel. And a dilapidated old window sash. He had had a nice, good, idle time all the while. Plenty of company, and the fence had three coats of whitewash on it. If he hadn't run out of whitewash, he would have bankrupted every boy in the village. Tom said to himself that it was not such a hollow world after all. He had discovered a great law in human action without knowing it. Namely, that in order to make a man or a boy covet a thing, it is only necessary to make that thing difficult to attain. If he had been a great and wise philosopher, like the writer of this book, he would now have comprehended that work consists of whatever a body is obliged to do, and that play consists of whatever a body is not obliged to do. And this would help him understand why constructing artificial flowers or performing on a treadmill is work, while rolling ten pins or climbing Mont Blanc is only amusement. There are wealthy gentlemen in England who drive four-horse passenger coaches 20 or 30 miles on a daily line in the summer because the privilege costs them considerable money. But if they were offered wages for the service, that would turn into work, and then they would resign. The boy mused a while over the substantial change which had taken place in the worldly circumstances and then wended toward headquarters to report. Tom, as a general, triumphant reward, dismal felicity, commission, and omission. Tom presented himself before Aunt Polly, who was sitting by an open window in a pleasant rearward apartment, which was bedroom, breakfast room, dining room, and library combined. The balmy summer air, the restful quiet, the odor of the flowers, and the drowsing murmur of the bees had had their effect and she was nodding over her knitting, for she had no company but the cat, and it was asleep on her lap. Her spectacles were propped up on her gray head for safety. She had thought, of course, that Tom had deserted long ago, and she wondered at seeing him place himself in her power again in this intrepid way. He said, May I go and play now, aunt? What, already? How much have you done? It's all done, aunt. Tom, don't lie to me. I can't bear it. I ain't, aunt. It is all done. Aunt Polly placed small trust in such evidence. She went out to see for herself, and she would have been content to find 20% of Tom's statement true. But she found the entire fence whitewashed, and not only whitewashed, but elaborately coated and recoated, and even a streak added to the ground. Her astonishment was almost unspeakable. She said, well, I never. There's no getting around it. You can work when you put a mind to, Tom. And then she diluted the compliment by adding, but it's powerful seldom you're a mind to, I'm bound to say. Well, go along and play. But mind you get back sometime in a week or I'll tan you. She was so overcome by the splendor of his achievement that she took him into the closet and selected a choice apple and delivered it to him. 
along with an improving lecture upon the added value and flavor a treat took to itself when it came without sin through virtuous effort. And while she closed with a happy scriptural flourish, he hooked a donut. Then he skipped out and saw Sid just starting up the outside stairway that led to the back rooms on the second floor. Clods were handy, and the air was full of them in a twinkling. They raged about Sid like a hailstorm, and before Aunt Polly could collect her surprise faculties and sally to the rescue, six or seven clods had taken personal effect, and Tom was over the fence and gone. There was a gate, but as a general thing, he was too crowded for time to make use of it. His soul was at peace. Now that he had settled with Sid for calling attention to his black thread and getting him into trouble, Tom skirted the block and came around into the muddy alley that led by the back of his aunt's cow table. He presently got safely beyond the reach of capture and punishment and hastened toward the public square of the village where two military companies of boys had met for conflict according to previous appointment. Tom was general of one of these armies, Joe Harper, a bosom friend, general of the other. These two great commanders did not condescend to fight in person, that being better suited to the still smaller fry, but sat together on an eminence and conducted the field operations by orders delivered through aides de camp. Tom's army won a great victory after a long and hard-fought battle. Then the dead were counted, Prisoners exchanged, the terms of the next disagreement agreed upon, and the day for the necessary battle appointed, after which the armies fell into line and marched away, and Tom turned homeward alone. As he was passing by the house where Jeff Thatcher lived, he saw a new girl in the garden, a lovely little blue-eyed creature with yellow hair plaited into two long tails, white summer frock, and embroidered pantalettes. The fresh-crowned hero fell without firing a shot. A certain Amy Lawrence vanished out of his heart and left not even a memory of herself behind. He had thought he loved her to distraction. He had regarded his passion as adoration, and behold, it was only a poor little evanescent partiality. He had been months winning her. She had confessed hardly a week ago. He had been the happiest and proudest boy in the world only seven short days and here in one instant of time she had gone out of his heart like a casual stranger whose visit is done. He worshipped this new angel with a furtive eye till he saw that she discovered him. Then he pretended he did not know she was present and began to show off in all sorts of absurd, boyish ways in order to win her admiration. He kept up this grotesque foolishness for some time, but by and by... While he was in the midst of some dangerous gymnastic performances, he glanced aside and saw that the little girl was wending her way toward the house. Tom came up to the fence and leaned on it, grieving and hoping she would tarry yet a while longer. She halted for a moment on the steps and then moved toward the door. Tom heaved a great sigh as she put her foot on the threshold, but his face lit up right away for she tossed a pansy over the fence a moment before she disappeared. The boy ran around and stopped within a foot or two of the flower, and then shaded his eyes with his hand and began to look down the street as if he had discovered something of interest going on in that direction. Presently, 
He picked up the straw and began trying to balance it on his nose, with his head tilted far back, and as he moved from side to side in his efforts, he edged nearer and nearer toward the pansy. Finally, his bare foot rested upon it, his pliant toes closed upon it, and he hopped away with the treasure and disappeared around the corner. But only for a minute, only while he could button the flower inside his jacket, next to his heart, or next to his stomach, possibly, for he was not much posted in anatomy, and not hypocritical, anyway. He returned now, and hung about the fence till nightfall, showing off, as before, but the girl never exhibited herself again, though Tom comforted himself a little with the hope that she had been near some window, meantime, and had been aware of his attentions. Finally, he rode home reluctantly, with his poor head full of visions. All through supper, his spirits were so high that his aunt wondered what had gotten into the child. He took a good scolding about clotting Sid and did not seem to mind it in the least. He tried to steal his sugar under his aunt's very nose. He got his knuckles wrapped for it. He said, Aunt, you don't whack Sid when he takes it. Well, Sid, don't torment a body the way you do. You'd be always into that sugar if I weren't watching you. Presently she stepped into the kitchen, and Sid, happy in his immunity, reached for the sugar bowl, and sort of glorying over Tom, which was well nigh unbearable. But Sid's fingers slipped, and the bowl dropped and broke. Tom was in ecstasies, in such ecstasies that he even controlled his tongue and was silent. He said to himself that he would not speak a word, even when his aunt came in, but would sit perfectly still till she asked who did the mischief, and then he would tell, and there would be nothing so good in the world as to see that pet model catch it. He was so brim full of exultation that he could hardly hold himself when the old lady came back and stood above the wreck discharging lightnings of wrath from over his spectacles. He said to himself, now it's coming. And the next instant, he was sprawling on the floor. The potent palm was uplifted to strike again when Tom cried out, Hold on now. What are you belting me for? Sid broke it. Aunt Polly paused, perplexed, and Tom looked for healing pity. And when she got her tongue again, she only said, Hmm. Well, you didn't get a lick amiss, I reckon. You've been into some audacious mischief when I wasn't around like enough. Then her conscience reproached her, and she yearned to say something kind and loving, but she judged that would be constructed into a confession that she had been in the wrong, and discipline forbade that. So she kept silent, and went about her affairs with a troubled heart. Tom sulked in a corner and exalted his woes. He knew that in her heart his aunt was on her knees to him, and he was morosely gratified by the consciousness of it. He would hang out no signals. He would take notice of none. He knew that a yearning glance fell upon him, now and then, through a film of tears, but he refused recognition of it. He pictured himself lying sick unto death and his aunt bending over him, beseeching him one little forgiving word, but he would turn his face to the wall and die with that word unsaid. Ah, how would she feel then? 
and he pictured himself brought home from the river, dead, with all his curls wet, and his sore heart at rest. How she would throw herself upon him, and her tears would fall like rain, and her lips pray God give her back the boy, and she would never, never abuse him anymore. But he would lie there cold and white and make no sign, a poor little sufferer whose griefs were at an end. He so worked upon his feelings with the pathos of these dreams that he had to keep swallowing. He was so like to choke, and his eyes swam in a blur of water which overflowed when he winked and trickled from the end of his nose, and such a luxury to him was this petting of his sorrows that he could not bear to have them worldly cheeriness or any grating delight intrude upon it. It was too sacred for such contact, and so, presently, when his cousin Mary danced in, all alive with joy of seeing home again after an age-long visit of one week to the country, he got up and moved in the clouds and darkness at one door as she brought song and sunshine in at the other. He wandered far from the accustomed haunts of boys and sought desolate places that were in harmony with his spirit. A log raft in the river invited him, and he seated himself on its outer ridge and contemplated the dreary vastness of the stream, wishing, the while, that he could only be drowned, all at once and unconsciously, without undergoing the uncomfortable routine devised by nature. Then he thought of his flower. He got it out, rumpled and wilted, and it mightily increased his dismal felicity. He wondered if she would pity him if she knew. Would she cry and wish that she had a right to put her arms around his neck and comfort him? Or would she turn coldly away like all the hollow world? This picture brought such an agony of pleasurable suffering that he worked it over and over again in his mind and set up in a new and varied lights till he wore it threadbare. At last he rose up, sighing and departed in the darkness. About half past nine or ten o'clock, he came along the deserted street where the adored unknown live. He paused a moment. No sound fell upon his listening ear. A candle was casting a dull glow upon the curtain of second-story window. Was the sacred presence here? He climbed the fence, threaded his stealthy way through the plants till he stood under that window. He looked up at it long and with emotion. Then he laid him down on the ground under it disposing himself upon his back with his hands clasped around his breast and holding the poor wilted flower and thus he would die out in the cold world with no shelter over his homeless head no friendly hand to wipe the death damps from his brow no loving face to bend pityingly over him when the great agony came and thus she would see him when she looked out upon that glad morning and oh would she drop one little tear upon his poor, lifeless form? Would she heave one little sigh to see bright young life so rudely blighted, so untimely cut down? The window went up. A maidservant's discordant voice profaned the holy calm, and a deluge of water drenched the prone martyr's remains. The strangling hero sprang up with a relieving snort. There was a whiz of a missile in the air, mingled with a murmur of a curse, a sound as a shivering glass followed, 
and a small, vague form went over the fence and shot away in the gloom. Not long after, as Tom, all undressed for bed, was surveying his drenched garments by the light of the tallow dip, Sid woke up, but if he had any dim idea of making any references to illusions, he thought better of it and held his peace, for there was danger in Tom's eye. Tom turned in without the added vexation of prayers, and Sid made a mental note of the omission. 4. Mental Acrobatics Attending Sunday School The Superintendent Showing Off Tom lionized. The sun rose upon a tranquil world and beamed down upon the peaceful village like a benediction. Breakfast over, Aunt Polly had family worship. It began with a prayer built from the ground up with solid sources of scriptural quotations, welded together with a thin mortar of originality. And from the summit of this she delivered a grim chapter of the Mosaic Law as from Sinai. Then Tom girded up his loins, so to speak, and went to work to get his verses. Sid had learned his lesson days before. Tom bent all his energies to the memorizing of five verses, and he chose part of the Sermon on the Mount because he could find no verses that were shorter. At the end of half an hour, Tom had a vague general idea of his lesson, but no more, for his mind was traversing the whole field of human thought and his hands were busy with distracting recreations. Mary took his book to hear him recite, and he tried to find his way through the fog. Blessed are the poor. Yes, poor. Blessed are the poor um, in spirit. In spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they, they, theirs, for theirs. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they, they, for they, uh, S-H-A, for they, S-H, oh, I don't know what it is, shall, oh, shall, for they shall, for they shall, uh, uh, shall mourn, uh, uh, Blessed are they that shall, they that, uh, they that shall mourn, for they shall, uh, shall, what? Why don't you tell me, Mary? What do you want to be so mean for? Oh, Tom, you poor thick-headed thing. I'm not teasing you. I wouldn't do that. You must go and learn it again. Don't you be discouraged, Tom. You'll manage it. And if you do... I'll give you something ever so nice. There, now that's a good boy. All right, what is it, Mary? Tell me what it is. Never you mind, Tom. You know if I say it's nice, it is nice. You bet you that's so, Mary. All right, I'll tackle it again. And he did tackle it again. And under the double pressure of curiosity and prospective gain, he did it with such spirit that he accomplished a shining success. Mary gave him a brand new Barlow knife, worth twelve and a half cents, and the convulsion of delight that swept his system shook him to his foundations. True, the knife would not cut anything, but it was a sure enough Barlow, and there was an inconceivable grandeur in that.
though where the western boys ever got the idea that such a weapon could possibly be counterfeited to its injury is an imposing mystery that will always remain so, perhaps. Tom contrived to scarify the cupboard with it and was arranging to begin the bureau when he was called off to dress for Sunday school. Mary gave him a tin basin of water and a piece of soap and he went outside the door and set the basin on a little bench there. Then he dipped the soap in the water and laid it down, turned up his sleeves, poured out the water on the ground gently, and then entered the kitchen and began to wipe his face diligently on the towel behind the door. But Mary removed the towel and said, Now ain't you ashamed, Tom. You mustn't be so bad. Water won't hurt you. Tom was a trifle disconcerted. The basin was refilled, and this time he stood over it a little while, gathering resolution, took in a big breath, and began. When he entered the kitchen presently, with both eyes shut and groping for the towel with his hands, an honorable testimony of suds and water was dripping from his face. But when he emerged from the towel, he was not yet satisfactory, for the clean territory stopped short at his chin and his jaws like a mask. Below and beyond this line was a dark expanse of unirrigated soil that spread downward in front and backward around his neck. Mary took him in hand, and when she was done with him, he was a man and a brother, without distinction of color, and his saturated hair was neatly brushed, and its short curls wrought into the dainty and symmetrical general effect. He privately smoothed out the curls with labor and difficulty, and plastered his hair close down to his head, where he held curls to be effeminate, and his own filled his life with bitterness. Then Mary got out of the suit of his clothing that had been used only on Sundays during two years. They were simply called his other clothes, and so by that we know the size of his wardrobe. The girl put him to rights after he had dressed himself. She buttoned his neat roundabout up to his chin, turned his vast shirt collar down over the shoulders, brushed him off, and crowned him with a speckled straw hat. He now looked exceedingly improved and uncomfortable. He was fully uncomfortable as he looked, for there was a restraint about the whole clothes and cleanliness that galled him. He hoped that Mary would forget his shoes, but the hope was blighted. She coated them thoroughly with tallow, as was the custom, and brought them out. He lost his temper and said he was always being made to do everything he didn't want to do. But Mary said persuasively, Please, Tom, that's a good boy. So he got into the shoes, snarling. Mary was soon ready, and the three children set out for Sunday school, a place that Tom hated with his whole heart, but Sid and Mary were fond of it. Sabbath school hours were from nine to half past ten, and then church service. Two of the children always remained for the sermon voluntarily, and the other always remained too, for stronger reasons. The church's high-backed, uncushioned pews would seat about three hundred persons. The edifice was but a small, plain affair, with a sort of pine-board tree box on top of it for a steeple. At the door, Tom dropped back a step and accosted a Sunday-dressed comrade. Say, Billy, 
Got a yellow jacket? Yes. What do you take for? What do you give? Piece of licorice and a fish hook? Let's see them. Tom exhibited. They were satisfactory. And the property changed hands. Then Tom traded a couple of white alleys for three red tickets and some small trifle or other, a couple of blue ones. He waylaid other boys as they came and went on buying tickets for various colors ten or fifteen minutes longer. He entered the church now with a swarm of clean and noisy boys and girls, proceeded to his seat and started a quarrel with the first boy that came handy. The teacher... A grave elderly man interfered. Then he turned his back for a moment, and Tom pulled the boy's hair in the next bench. He was absorbed in his book when the boy turned around, stuck a pen in another boy presently in order to hear him say ouch, and got a new reprimand from his teacher. Tom's whole class were of a pattern, restless, noisy, and troublesome. When they came to recite their lessons, not one of them knew his verses perfectly but had to be prompted all along. However, they worried through, and each got his reward. In small blue tickets, each with a passage of scripture on it, each blue ticket was paid for two verses of the recitation. Ten blue tickets equaled a red one, and could be exchanged for it. Ten red tickets equaled a yellow one. For ten yellow tickets, the superintendent gave a very plainly bound Bible worth 40 cents in those easy times to the pupil. How many of my readers would have the industry or the application to memorize 2,000 verses, even for a Doré Bible? And yet, Mary had acquired two Bibles in this way. It was the patient work of two years, and a boy of German parentage had won four or five. He once recited 3,000 verses without stopping but the strain upon his mental faculties was too great, and he was little better than an idiot from that day forth. A grievous misfortune for the school, for on great occasions before company, the superintendent, as Tom expressed it, had always made this boy come out and spread himself. Only the older pupils managed to keep their tickets and stick to their tedious work long enough to get a Bible, and so the delivery of one of these prizes was a rare and noteworthy circumstance. The successful pupil was so great and conspicuous for that day that on the spot every scholar's heart was fired with a fresh ambition that often lasted a couple weeks. It is possible that Tom's mental stomach had never really hungered for one of these prizes, but unquestionably his entire being had for many a day longed for the glory and the eclat that came with it. In due course, the superintendent stood up in front of the pulpit with a closed hymn book in his hand and his forefinger inserted between its leaves and commanded attention. When a Sunday school superintendent makes his customary little speech, a hymn book in his hand is as necessary as is the inevitable sheet of music in the hand of the singer who stands forward on the platform and sings a solo at a concert. Though why is a mystery for neither the hymn book nor the sheet of music is ever referred to by the sufferer. The superintendent was a slim creature of thirty-five, with a sandy goatee and short sandy hair. He wore a stiff standing collar, whose upper edge almost reached his ears, 
and whose sharp points curve forward abreast the corners of his mouth, a fence that compelled a straight look out ahead and a turning of the whole body when a side view was required. His chin was propped up on a spreading cravat, which was as broad and long as a banknote, and had fringed ends. His boot toes were turned sharply up, in the fashion of the day, like sleigh runners, an effect patiently and laboriously produced by the young man by sitting with their toes pressed against the wall for hours together. Mr. Walters was very earnest of Maine, and very sincere and honest at heart, and he held sacred things and places in such reverence, and so separated them from worldly matters that unconsciously to himself his Sunday school voice had acquired a peculiar intonation which was wholly absent on weekdays. He began after this fashion. Now, children, I want you all to sit up just as straight and pretty as you can and give me all your attention for a minute or two. There. That is it. That is the way good little boys and girls should do. I see one little girl who is looking out of the window. I'm afraid she thinks I am out there somewhere. Perhaps up in one of those trees, making a speech to the little birds. Applause of titter. I want to tell you how good it makes me feel to see so many bright, clean little faces assembled in a place like this, learning to do right and be good, and so forth and so on. It is not necessary to set down the rest of the oration. It was of a pattern which does not vary, and so it is familiar to us all. The latter third of the speech was marred by the resumption of fights and other recreations among certain of the bad boys, and by fidgetings and whisperings that extended far and wide, washing even to the bases of isolated and incorruptible rocks like Sid and Mary. But now every sound ceased suddenly, with the subsidence of Mr. Walter's voice, and the conclusion of the speech was received with a burst of silent gratitude. A good part of the whispering had been occasioned by an event which was more or less rare, the entrance of visitors. Lawyer Thatcher, accompanied by a very feeble and aged man, a fine, portly, middle-aged gentleman with iron-gray hair, and a dignified lady who was doubtless the latter's wife. The lady was leading a child. Tom had been restless and full of chafings and repinings. Conscious smitten, too. He could not meet Amy Lawrence's eye. He could not brook her loving gaze. But when he saw this small newcomer, his soul was all ablaze with bliss in a moment. The next moment, he was showing off with all his might. Cuffing boys, pulling hair, making faces, in a word, using every art that seemed likely to fascinate a girl and win her applause. His exultation had but one alloy, the memory of his humiliation in this angel's garden, and that record and sand was fast washing out under the waves of happiness that were sweeping over it now. The visitors were given the highest seat of honor, and as soon as Mr. Walter's speech was finished, he introduced them to the school. The middle-aged man turned out to be a prodigious personage, no less one the county judge, altogether the most august creation these children had ever looked upon, and they wondered what kind of material he was made of, and they half wanted to hear him roar, 
and were half afraid he might too. He was from Constantinople, twelve miles away. So he had traveled and seen the world. These very eyes had looked upon the county courthouse, which was said to have a tin roof. The awe which these reflections inspired was attested by the impressive silence and the ranks of staring eyes. This was the great Judge Thatcher, brother of their own lawyer. Jeff Thatcher immediately went forward to be familiar with the great man and to be envied by the school. It would have been music to his soul to hear the whisperings. Look at him, Jim. He's a-going up there. Say, look. He's a-going to shake hands with him. He's shaking hands with him. By jings, don't you wish you was Jeff? Mr. Walters fell to showing off with all sorts of official bustlings and activities, giving orders, delivering judgments, discharging directions here, there, everywhere, and he could find a target. The librarian showed off, running hither and thither with his arms full of books and making a deal of the splutter and fuss that insect authority delights in. The young lady teacher showed off, bending sweetly over the pupils that were lately being boxed, lifting pretty warning fingers at bad little boys and patting good ones lovingly. The young gentleman teacher showed off with small scoldings and other little displays of authority and fine attention to discipline, and most of the teachers of both sexes found business up at the library by the pulpit, and it was business that frequently had to be done over again two or three times with much seeming vexation. The little girls showed off in various ways, and the little boys showed off with such diligence that the air was thick with paper wads and the murmur of scufflings. And above it all, the great man sat and beamed a majestic judicial smile upon all the house and warmed himself in the sun of his grandeur, for he was showing off too. There was only one thing wanting to make Mr. Walter's ecstasy complete, and that was the chance to deliver a Bible prize and exhibit a prodigy. Several pupils had a few yellow tickets, but none had enough. He had been around among the star pupils inquiring. He would have given worlds now to have that German lad back again with a sound mind. And now at this moment, when hope was dead, Tom Sawyer came forward with nine yellow tickets, nine red tickets, and ten blue ones, and demanded a Bible. This was a thunderbolt out of a clear sky. Walters was not expecting an application from this source for the next ten years. There was no getting around it. Here were the certified checks, and they were good for their face. Tom was therefore elevated to a place where the judge and the other elect and the great news was announced from headquarters. It was the most stunning surprise of the decade, and so profound was the sensation that it lifted a new hero up the judicial one's altitude, and the school had two marvels to gaze upon in place of one. The boys were all eaten up with envy, but those that suffered the bitterest pangs were those who perceived too late that they themselves had contributed to this hated splendor. By trading tickets to Tom for wealth, he had amassed in selling whitewashing privileges. These despised themselves as being the dupes of a wily fraud a guileful snake in the grass. The prizes delivered to Tom was such an effusion as a superintendent could pump up under the circumstances. 
but it lacked somewhat of a true gush, for the poor fellow's instinct taught him that there was a mystery here that could not well bear the light, perhaps. It was simply preposterous that this boy had warehoused two thousand sheaves of scriptural wisdom on his premises. A dozen would strain his capacity, without a doubt. Amy Lawrence was proud and glad, and she tried to make Tom see it in her face, but he wouldn't look. She wondered. Then she was just a grain troubled. Next, a dim suspicion came and went, came again. She watched. A furtive glance told her worlds, and then her heart broke, and she was jealous and angry, and the tears came, and she hated everybody, Tom most of all, she thought. Tom was introduced to the judge, but his tongue was tied. His breath would hardly come. His heart quaked, partly because the awful greatness of the man, but mainly because he was her parent. He would have liked to fall down and worship him if it were in the dark. The judge put his hand on Tom's head and called him a fine little man and asked him what his name was. The boy stammered, gasped, and got it out. Tom. Oh no, not Tom. It is Thomas. Ah, that's it. I thought there was more to it, maybe. That's very well. But you've another one, I dare say. And you'll tell it to me, won't you? Tell the gentleman your other name, Thomas, said Walters. And say, sir, you mustn't forget your manners. Thomas Sawyer, sir. That's it. That's a good boy. Fine boy. Fine, manly little fellow. Two thousand verses is a great many. Very, very great many. And you never can be sorry for the trouble you took to learn them. For knowledge is worth more than anything there is in this world. It's what makes great men and good men. You'll be a great man and a good man yourself someday, Thomas. And then you'll look back and say, It's all owing to the precious Sunday school privileges of my boyhood. It's all owing to my dear teachers that taught me to learn. It's all owing to the good superintendent who encouraged me and watched over me and gave me a beautiful Bible, a splendid, elegant Bible, to keep and have it all for my own. Always, it's all owing to right bringing up. That is what, that is what you will say, Thomas, that you wouldn't take any money for those 2,000 verses. No, indeed, you wouldn't. And now you wouldn't mind telling me and this lady, some of the things you've learned. No, I know you wouldn't, for we are proud of little boys that learn. Now, no doubt, you know the names of all twelve disciples. Won't you tell us the names of the first two that were appointed? Tom was tugging at a buttonhole and looking sheepish. He blushed now, and his eyes fell. Mr. Walter's heart sank within him. He said to himself, It is not possible that the boy can answer the simplest question. Why did the judge ask him? Yet he felt obliged to speak up and say, Answer the gentleman, Thomas, don't be afraid. Tom still hung fire. Now, I know you'll tell me, said the lady. The names of the first two disciples were David and Goliath. Let us draw the curtain of charity over the rest of this scene.
Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.